The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we turn to your prayer, you turn to your word, God, we pray that you would remind us of who we are in Christ. And if, as you remind us of who we are, may we live according to our identity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know that this past month, my family and I went to Washington, D.C., and one of the memorials we went to was a World War II memorial. Um, we actually accidentally kind of went there. We were trying to head back to our car. It was the end of a long day, and there was construction, and so we had to go a different path. And we were walking by, tired, and all of those things. And it was this great big memorial with, with a water fountain that was spraying everywhere, and you could dip your feet in there. And so we went over there, and we took a nap. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the primary features of this memorial was a wall, a wall full of gold stars. I actually have a picture of it here. Can we guess how many stars are there? Can we guess? 50? Good guess. Good guess. So, a thousand? Okay, good. So, there are over 4,000 stars there. And when we first showed up, we weren't really sure what they were for. We just thought maybe they were decoration or commemoration of some sort. We weren't sure. And as the kids started to inquire what these stars were all about, uh, we looked for a sign and we finally found a plaque. And it was titled, The Price of Freedom. And it said, Freedom Wall, talking about this, holds 4,048 gold stars. And then this is what blew me away. Each gold star represents 100 American service personnel who died or remained missing in war. And then it goes on to say that the 405,000 who died uh, was second only to the Civil War in which 620,000 Americans lost their life. That is three times of the Green Bay metropolitan area. You know, when you look at the wall and you understand what it represents, it's hard not to be overwhelmed with the sacrifice that so many people have given. You know, it's a great reminder to me and, and to us that, that we have much to give thanks for as we think about the 4th of July coming up. We have a lot to give thanks. We're reminded that freedom isn't free, that it comes at great cost. We're reminded that we live in a great nation. And so we should celebrate that and thank God for that. But as great as our nation is, we also have to look at our nation honestly. And we have to recognize that our nation is not perfect, but that our nation is deeply flawed. In 1996, Reverend Joe Wright, you might want to write that name down because I had four people ask me for this illustration after last service. So Reverend Joe Wright was invited to deliver the opening prayer at a session of the Kansas House of Representatives. I don't know if they ever invited him back, but this was his prayer. He said, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we've done. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and call it moral pluralism. We have worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. 
We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. And the ends with this, search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. As I read that, I I read it carefully because I don't want it to seem as if the problems are all out there and not in us. The problems is primarily with Christ's church because we were called to be active in fighting for justice and loving mercy and things of that sort. But as we look at this list and as we recognize as great of a nation that we are, we are still also a very deeply flawed and broken nation. Not only that, we're also a very temporary nation. I know this is hard to think of, but there will be a day in which the United States of America does not exist anymore. Ronald Reagan once said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction, but we do know that it will not endure for all eternity. We know that there will be a day where America does not exist. And so when we look honestly at our nation, as we celebrate and give thanks for our nation, which could be argued maybe the greatest nation on the face of the earth, as we give thanks for the nation, This next few days, we also have to honestly look at it and say, it is a broken nation. It's a proud nation, and it's a temporary nation that is so very fragile. But the good news that we're going to see today is that there is another nation, a greater nation, a holy nation that God makes available to us, a nation in which the laws are perfect in which the leader's love is pervasive, and in which its existence will endure forever. This nation, this holy nation, is the nation of God. If you would please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 12 today. It's page 1014 in the Red Bible, page 1316 in the Children's Bible. 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, thus the name. And he was writing to people that were in imperfect nations, uh, people who were being persecuted by the nations that they lived in. And he writes to give them the encouragement and the reminder that this nation is not your primary citizenship, but that you belong to another nation, a greater nation, a perfect nation, an eternal nation. And he calls them to place their hope and their joy in that nation above all other nations. And so let's read together today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for, the, for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you... You 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter, inspired by God, writes to Christ's church, and he tells them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Today, I want to unpack a little bit, what does it mean that the church is a holy nation? And so really, three things I want to look at. First off, how do we become citizens of this holy nation? Who is, who are citizens of this nation? Secondly, what is the national identity? In other words, who are these people? What do they look like? What is unique about them? What are their characteristics? And then finally, the national agenda. What is the the passion and the focus of this nation established by God? First, let's look at the national citizenship. Who Who is a citizen of this holy nation? And how do you become one if you aren't? Verse four says, As you come to Jesus... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Let's pause there. So Jesus, throughout this passage, is compared to a stone. Not a dead stone, but a living stone, a vibrant stone. And what we learn throughout this passage is that he is a polarizing stone. He's a a polarizing figure. We see here in this passage In verse 4 and later in verse 6, it says that Jesus is chosen and precious to God. But at the same time, this Jesus, the same stone, in verse 4 and 7, we are told he has been rejected by men. This passage shows us what we see throughout the entire, through all the Gospels. That as Jesus goes along and he ministers, some people gravitate towards him and some people are repelled by him. You see, if you have an honest understanding of who Jesus is, You will either love him or you will hate him because he is a polarizing figure. As we read on, we see that the reason why Jesus is so polarizing, the reason why people reject him is not simply because of he is a stone, a living stone, but because of which particular stone he is. Verse 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture... He's quoting Isaiah 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And then verse 7, midway through, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, the reason why Jesus is such a polarizing figure is because he doesn't simply claim to be a stone, but he claims to be the cornerstone. Now, if you're a builder or if you've ever put something together, you know how important this cornerstone is. It has to be your best stone. It has to be, it has to be sturdy. It has to be flat. It has to be square, right? Because off of that stone, it's really the rest of the foundation comes and the walls spring up. And so what Jesus is saying is that I am the cornerstone. And as a cornerstone, I am the most important part of this whole religion thing. And so they're offended by it. 
Matter of fact, in verse 8, it says that he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, why is it that Jesus' claim, and he does claim to be the cornerstone, why is that so offensive to people? It doesn't seem like it would be, but why, why does Jesus claim to be a cornerstone? Why is that so offensive? Well, you see, the, the Jews, the religious leaders of that time, wanted to have another foundation. As a matter of fact, they did have another foundation. The foundation that they had for their acceptance before God, be, to be loved by God, their, 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 their foundation for salvation was not in, in someone else. It was in themselves. You see, their, their foundation was their own religious rituals, their moral character, their obedience to the law. And then Jesus comes along and he exposes their foundation for what it truly is. He exposes that their foundation is rotten to the core. Jesus says things like, your father is the devil. Anyone who lusts in his heart is guilty of adultery. He's revealing how rotten their foundation is. A couple years ago, I was replacing some exterior lights by my driveway outside my house because the lights have kind of fallen down and they were drooping. And so I took the old lights out and I put the new lights in. And sure enough, uh, not much longer, those lights were now drooping over. And so I pulled those out and I started to dig a little bit deeper. And as I dug a little bit deeper, I had to take off the siding. And the siding was in perfect condition. It's this beautiful cedar siding, but I had to take it off with a crowbar. And as I took it off, what I found was that the plywood behind all of this was rotten out. It was so rotten that I could literally take my pinky finger and poke a hole through it very easily. And so it could by no means sustain the weight of an itty-bitty lamp because it was rotten to the core. In the same way, Jesus comes along and he says to the religious leaders, you may look pretty on the outside. You may have this perfectly nice siding of religious duties and, and morality, but I pull back the siding. I can see under the veneer of your good deeds and the heart, the foundation that you are standing on is rotten to the core. You can understand why this might have been offensive, right? Jesus is telling them that, that everything they worked for in life is rotten. All of the good deeds that they did, all of the religious rituals they went through, Jesus says, that's not worth anything before God because your heart is corrupt. You see, God can, God can pull back the veneer of your righteous deeds and he can look into your heart and he can see your motivations. He can see your embarrassing thoughts. He can see the things that you do in secret. And God knows that behind the veneer of our righteous deeds is a rotten core. And a rotten core makes a horrible foundation. A horrible foundation to be accepted before God. But the good news is God does not simply come and reveal our foundation and how inept it is, but he also gives to us a more solid foundation. Verse 4, Peter talking to Christians simply says, as you come to him. And then verse 6, he says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. How do we become citizens of this 
holy and eternal nation called the church? Well, it's simply by coming to Jesus. You see, it is far easier to become a citizen of heaven than it is even of the United States. For the United States, you have to have a, a, a waiting period in which they make sure that you have good moral character. And then you have to fill out forms and send in money. And then you have to be fingerprinted and get a background check. And then you have to go through a citizenship interview. But to become part of this holy nation, all you have to do is come to Jesus. To come to Jesus, not simply as a moral example as, or as your buddy, but to come to Jesus as the cornerstone of your life, your righteousness, and your salvation. To put all your hope in the foundation of Jesus Christ and not in yourself. Romans 9 communicates this very clearly. It says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, not by works. Verse 31 says, But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, what foundation are you basing your life upon? What do you base the acceptance of God on in your life? What do you base the acceptance of, of your identity on? Do you base it on your own religious rituals, your own goodness, your own loveliness, your own character? God pulls back the veneer of our goodness to look into our hearts. And he sees that in the core, it is rotten. How do we become part of God's holy nation? It's by turning to another foundation by receiving Christ as our cornerstone and our foundation of righteousness before a holy God. And so this is our citizenship. This is how we become citizens, by rejecting our own foundation and turning to the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, once we are a part of this nation, what is our identity? Who are we? What kind of people are we? You know, understanding our identity is so extremely important, as we'll talk about in this point, because as we understand who we are, we act in accordance with our identity. Paul Tripp says that we are always in danger of identity amnesia, of forgetting who we are in Christ. And when we forget who we are in Christ, we act according to something else, to another identity, to whoever we believe ourselves to be. And so Peter comes and he reminds them of who they are in Christ. First in verse 5, he says, You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The picture Peter is giving here is of a new temple, a temple not made of rocks and stones, but of human stones with Christ as a chief cornerstone, that, that, this, that this new temple is built of the people of God. Ephesians elaborates on this. 
In Ephesians 2, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so what Peter is saying and what Paul is saying is that the temple of God is no longer a steeple. It is a people. That the Holy Spirit that resided in the Holy of Holies now resides in us, and we are the temple of God. You have to realize for a first century Jewish believer, this would have been so, so breathtaking to think that, that, the, that the Holy Spirit that resided in the place that only a high priest could go once a year in the Holy of Holies was now residing inside of us and inside Christ's church. But you are church. You are the temple of God. Not only that, he says that we are royal. We are a royal priesthood. By acknowledging this, what he is reminding us of is that when Christ died on the cross, that that the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place the, the place where the priest could only go once a year, the, it was separated by a curtain that I've read it was a foot thick. Could you imagine a foot thick curtain? Could you imagine that? And yet when Christ died on the cross, we read this. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention this because it is significant symbolism that we now have direct access to God, not through a human high priest, but through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. And now we are a part of the royal priesthood because we get to go to God, not only one day a year, but every moment of every day. And so we are a new temple, a new priesthood. And so we offer new sacrifices. That's what it says here in verse five. It says, you yourselves, like spiritual stones, are being built up, as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We no longer have to provide physical sacrifices because Christ was was the Lamb of God. He was our final sacrifice. He took away our sins. There's no more need for sacrifices, physical animal sacrifices, but now we give spiritual sacrifices. And so the question is, how do you and how do I, how do we give spiritual sacrifices to God? Well, throughout Scripture, we see a couple examples of how we give spiritual sacrifices to God. In Psalm 51, we are told that a broken heart and a contrite spirit is a sacrifice to God. I know that a lot of the rhetoric today is let us make America great again, but maybe we should be more focused on making America humble again, to fear the Lord because that is where greatness is found. Hebrews 13 says us singing praise to God is a spiritual sacrifice. And it also says sharing our possessions with one another, taking someone food when they're sick or or babysitting their kids when they're in need. Really anything in life, if you do it for the glory of God and for Jesus Christ, this is your spiritual sacrifice to God. This transforms all the mundane parts of life that you can mow the lawn for the glory of God, that you can wash dishes again for the glory of God. And this is your spiritual sacrifice. It is your worship of the Lord. And so we are a, 
a, a holy nation, the temple of God, a holy priesthood, but we are also a new people. Verse 9, probably one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. Peter's describing the church, and he says this, but you, meaning y'all, that's usually what Scripture means when it says you. It means y'all, all of you collectively, so not individualism, but y'all collectively. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The language that Peter used here is actually found in the Old Testament in Exodus, the way God is describing his people. And what he's doing here is he's saying this now applies to the church, that the church is now the people of God. And so I want to look through this verse quickly and just kind of highlight what he's saying here. First, he says that we are a chosen race. This word chosen means that we were foreloved by God. It's used uh, to describe Jesus earlier in this passage and back at the beginning of 1 Peter, his opening sentences. He says that we were chosen by God, trying to demonstrate that we have been foreloved by God. And so what makes us a race is not the color of, the, of our skin or the language that we speak or the region that we live. What makes us a chosen race is that we have been loved by God. This means that our race is composed of every skin type, black, white, Hispanic, Hmong, that all who trust in Christ as their cornerstone are a part of this race. We have a race that goes through every single race, and it goes across every single nation, in every single language. We are a chosen race. We are also, he says, a royal priesthood. Now, the first priesthood mentioned earlier in this passage in verse 5, I believe it was, was a commentary on our vertical relationship with God, that we now have access to the God of the universe, that we can go to him and pray to him and commune with him whenever we want. This one is more focused on our horizontal relationships, as we'll see in the verses to come, but that we are given this role of priests. You see, priests were to be mediators between God and man, and we have been given this obligation and this opportunity to, to be a connecting point, to be a bridge, to be a mediator of sorts between God and men and women and children in our community, that we get to tell them about how great our God is. Finally, he says that we are a holy nation and a people for his own possession. This term holy nation means that we are a nation that has been set apart for a specific person, or for a specific purpose. And of course we know that we are set apart for the Lord God, for the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Peter uses this language of a holy nation, he is quoting from Exodus 19.6. And in Exodus 19.6, God is bringing his people out of, out of bondage, out of Egypt, and he is saying to them, listen, if you obey my covenant, if, if you obey my covenant, you will be a holy nation. And now we get to the New Testament. And Peter says, that holy nation that God promised that they, if they fulfill the covenant, you, the church, you are that holy nation. Now the question is, how do did, how did we become a holy nation? Is it because we are such holy people or because we kept God's perfect commandments? Of course not. We became holy because one fulfilled his covenant perfectly on our behalf. One lived up to the covenant, 
for us. And so we became holy, not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ and the mercy of God. And he makes this overwhelmingly clear in verse 10. Again, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is making it crystal clear that we are holy, not because of what we do, but we are holy because of the mercy and grace of God. You know, if our nation, our holy nation, had a pledge of allegiance, it would differ just a bit from the one that we say in our schools. It would say one nation under God, indivisible, all true, with liberty and mercy for all. Not justice, but mercy for all. That's what we have received. We are recipients of God's mercy and have become part of this holy nation. This is our national identity. And so Peter takes us, he tells us our identity, and he says, now go be yourself. Go be who God created you to be. Understand who you are and then live according to that. You see, whoever you understand yourself to be, whatever you understand to be your identity, you will live out of that identity. For example, there's a guy named Gary Matthews, who's a retired technology worker, a self-confessed nerd, uh, who thinks he is a dog, okay? True story. He thinks he's a dog. He's 48 years old. He wears a dog collar. He eats dog food. Pedigree is his favorite, if you're ever interested. I actually tried dog food this week, didn't I, John? I didn't even, I didn't get, I think you owe me a dollar, don't you? Yeah, you owe me a dollar for that. That's right. But his uh, but anyways, he would have dog cookies and milk bones and things like that. And he even says that sometimes he goes up and he sleeps in his doghouse that he made up in the attic. But here this man is, right? Believes himself to be a dog. And so how does he act? He acts according to what he believes his identity to be, that he believes himself to be a dog. So he lives as a dog. You know, understanding your identity is so important for the transformation of your life. You see, if you understand yourself to be a fish, you'll live like a fish. A bear, you'll live like a bear. But if you understand that you are holy, then you can live a holy life. See, so many times I think we, 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 see, we see God's commands for holiness. And we say, oh, that's not really me. You know, like, I'm just this sinful, wretched person, like, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. You know, I'm a, I'm a spendaholic, I'm, I'm greedy, I'm, I'm a glutton, I'm a pervert, I'm an indulger, whatever it might be. And we, we categorize ourselves and says, this is who we are. We're not really those, that, that what God commands us to be. But God says all of those are lies. You, you may do those things, but that's not who you are. Your identity is that you are holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, Go be yourself. Go be who you are. And so when we sin, we're actually acting contrary to our identity and not in line with who we are. And so he says, remember, church, who you are. You are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You are God's people. And so go live according to who you now are in Christ. And so our holy citizenship is for all who trust in Jesus, come to Jesus as their foundation. 
Our national identity is as the people of God, a holy nation. And finally, we read of our national agenda. What are we passionate about? What are we called to do in this life? Look again, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies. I love that word, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, I, I think we probably do not have an appreciation for darkness as much as Peter's audience probably did. You know, if, if I go somewhere and it's dark, all I do is I pull out my cell phone and I turn on the flashlight and that helps me tremendously. But in those times, you can imagine what it was like for them to be on a boat in the middle of the sea with no lights being tossed to and fro. How, how frightening that might have been. Or guarding a post, guarding a post, waiting for the enemy to attack with, with no, no visible light at all. Or, or even to, to be traveling from one city to the next and not make it all the way for some reason. And so you have to camp out in complete darkness. You can imagine how absolutely terrifying that would be. See, in the Bible, darkness represents confusion and chaos and spiritual blindness. And this is where all of us have come from. But God in his mercy has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We were brought to life so that we could see the glory of God and that we who are in the light can go and tell those in darkness, listen, there is light to be had. There is glory to be had. Jesus is calling you from darkness to light. Go and see and taste that the Lord is good. You know, when I was in college, I, I took a trip up to Alaska because my dad lived up there at the time. And I was actually up there for a week by myself. And then he came up for another week. He was traveling for business. And the only way I could explain Alaska, if you've ever been there, is everywhere you look, it's like a postcard. That's pretty much what, it's just a postcard wherever you look. I remember one day I was actually jogging on the path and a moose just came out in front of me. It was like, no big deal. This is what happens in Alaska. It was beautiful. It was, it was amazing. So when I got home, I, I had to go tell people the excellencies of Alaska and how the mountains were, were terrific. And I showed them my pictures, which I'm sure bored them because it didn't really compare to the majesty when you see it. I'm wondering if you've ever done the same thing. Have you ever had to tell somebody about how wonderful a movie is or a song is or, or how wonderful a book is? See, if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as he talks about earlier in this chapter, if we have been brought out of darkness into the light, then we have both the obligation but also the privilege and the blessing to go and say, come and enjoy the excellencies of the one who brought me out of darkness and into light. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes goes like this. He says, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. If you want to complete your enjoyment of the excellencies of Christ, praise him to those around you. Share how good he is. You know, you know, you go and if you went and you hit a hole in one, right? And you weren't able to tell anyone. It would be absolute torture, wouldn't it? Because you wouldn't get to share that joy with anyone. But you have been brought from darkness to light. And we have this great privilege to go and tell others about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are called to be torches for Christ. 
We're called to be lights for Christ. You know, this past Friday, we watched the Howard, the Howard fireworks. And, and one of the cool things is, is you look up at the fireworks and the dark sky, and it brights up light. But when you turn backwards, you can see people's faces glow with whatever color the fireworks are. In some ways, we are called to be fireworks for Jesus, to shine the light of Christ in the midst of darkness. And so the agenda of this holy nation is to share the excellencies of our Savior, to be trophies of his grace before a watching world and tell them about the love of our Savior. Let me end by looking at verses 11 and 12. Peter continues and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is reminding his church that this is not your home, that whatever nationality you are on this earth, that is not your primary nationality, but that you belong to the nation of God and that you, you should live accordingly and you should suffer well, that others might know the goodness of God. If you trust in Christ, if you are part of the church, this peculiar people, this holy nation, this is not your home. Your home is yet to come. And it is glorious. And we must live according to our home and not to this foreign land. There's a letter from the second century that summarizes well how our holy nation is distinct from the world. And it's written by a Christian named Quadratus from Asia Minor, which is the region that Peter was writing to this letter. And it was written as a defense of Christianity and sent to the emperor in 129 AD. And in it, he says this. He says, Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. That's debatable. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. They follow the customs of the country in clothing and food, and other matters of daily living. At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution, come out of the scripture, of their own society. And then, I love this, he says, they live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens, and they endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the law demands. They love everyone, but everyone persecutes them. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute. And yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are reviled, and yet they wish only good for those who revile them. When they are insulted, they still act respectfully to those who insult them. And when they do good, they are punished as criminals. And when they are punished, they rejoice because they are brought to life. 
And he ends like this, saying, They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies, and they are hunted down by the Gentiles. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. Friends, we are a part of a holy nation. It is an invisible nation, but it is a glorious nation that we are called to live out wherever God puts us. Our national identity is that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And so we are called to go and live in the joy of it and live consistent with our identity. Friends, as you celebrate this 4th of July, the nation that God has put us in, celebrate well, give thanks well, but reminded that you are a part of a greater nation and your citizenship is not primarily here on earth, but it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you so much that you have put us in a country where, where there is great abundance and even safety and, and, and places to join and, and to serve you and to worship you freely, Lord God. And Lord, we confess that we so often get so consumed with, with, with this nation that we forget about the heavenly nation that we are a part of. Lord, let us live according to our primary citizenship, which is in heaven. We need you to help us in this way. God, as we turn to your table, as we remember the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice that, that made us priests, that made us a holy nation, God, may we be humbled by your grace. Do not let us become arrogant because of our status, but let us be humbled knowing that we do not deserve it. And let us rejoice in your excellencies, even as we partake this supper today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nations.